Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte. Right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash Discover Careers. Hey, everyone. So sometimes in our voicemail box, we get questions not just for me, but about me. And you know I do a Q&A every week, but there's a lot that we just can't tackle in that first part of the show. So I thought I'd share a conversation I had with legendary broadcaster Katie Couric last week on her podcast. I spoke to her and her co-host Brian Goldsmith about the Mueller investigation, Trump's legal strategy, and the hubbub around this idea of collusion. And to no one's surprise, I got in some questions of my own about her experience broadcasting on 9-11 and the recent allegations against CBS head Les Moonves. Hope you enjoy it. And I'll be back Thursday with a regular episode of Stay Tuned. Preet, we're very excited to have you here on our podcast. And this is a crossover episode that will be airing what does that in mean both exactly? of our feeds. Well, it basically means we go both ways. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here. You heard it here first. And since I'm the professional journalist, um, I'm going to start by asking you some questions. Okay. And then you can turn around. And, of course, I'm joined by my colleague, good friend, and co-host, Brian Goldsmith. He is a political junkie extraordinaire. And I don't know. He's so excited to have you here, Preet. I don't Hi, know Brian. if he can contain himself. No, I can't. I'm jumping out of my skin all the way here from Los Angeles. <laughs> don't do that. That's, that's all right, disgusting. Well, you're much more interesting than I am, Preet. <laughs> Seriously. Not I'm curious. True. Uh, I recently interviewed James Comey. Uh, I know he's a friend and former colleague of yours. He would not give an inch. I was hoping we could break some news in Aspen about his actions during the 2016 campaign, including the letter he sent 11 days before the election. Do you think he has a fair argument? And despite your friendship, do you think he should just say, I screwed up? Look, you know, he, he's a smart guy, and I worked for him, and I worked alongside him when he was the deputy attorney general, and I worked in the Senate. We friendship on, aside. Yeah, no. So he, he can say what he wants to say. I would have done it differently. And if he believes that what he did was right, then he has a right to say that and a right to defend himself. What would you have done? I wouldn't have sent that letter. I, I thought the letter was a mistake. I think most people think the letter was a mistake. I mean, the best I can do when talking about other people's errors, who I think were operating in good faith, like I don't think he was trying to sway the election. I don't think he was acting out of partisan interests. I don't think he had an ax to grind with anybody. What I do believe is that he was trying to make the best decision that he could make. I think it was the wrong decision. And I think you can judge people based on their decision-making, both on the wisdom of the decision, but also on the intent behind the decision. And sometimes people make a mistake of judgment, which I think this was. 
And sometimes people can make a mistake both of judgment and of, and of good faith and doing something for a nefarious purpose. I think he was trying very hard to save the reputation of the FBI or defend the reputation of the FBI. I think in the longer run, it's arguable that he did it more harm than good. And I think the problem with that letter is that it was on the eve of the election, yes. And you know, I remember I, I was in a little bit in a unique position to know uh, before the world did what the consequence of the letter would be insofar as the laptop was in the custody of you know my folks, the FBI agents we were working with, the Anthony Weiner laptop, because we were investigating Anthony Weiner for these other you know sex abuse-related crime, you know, sexual enticement crimes of a minor. And so we knew among a small group of people that nobody yet was aware what was on the laptop. So the sending of the letter indicated legitimately and naturally to a lot of people, including political opponents of Hillary Clinton, that there, there must be something damaging because why would you otherwise – sort of a vicious circle. The fact that you issued the letter must indicate that there's something very damning on the laptop. And for their own political reason, I think a lot of people acted badly after they got the letter because it was in their political interest to make hay of it. But I think one should have anticipated that that was going to happen. And it might have been the better course to wait and see if the stuff on the laptop was redundant, irrelevant, you know, to affect the investigation, all of which turned out to be so. And why couldn't he have put as many agents as possible on that to comb through those emails and to do nothing until he had the information he needed to move ahead or not? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. He but, did have the power to do that, right? Yeah, you know, I, I think everything relating to how the information on the laptop was exploited, a lot of things relating to that, you know, were not wonderful. And look, there's a very long Inspector General report on the issue of what happened with that laptop and how much time it took to ask for the information on the laptop. Um, right, right. I'm, 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 my office is in the IG report to the extent that, you know, we were staying in our lane and focusing on the Anthony Weiner potential criminal case. And we're a little bit surprised that nobody was doing anything more quickly to exploit and look at the emails on the laptop. You were widely praised for going after political corruption in New York, and you took down two of the three most powerful politicians in the state when you were U.S. attorney. How much corruption do you think still exists in Albany and New York state government? And what role has Andrew Cuomo, the current governor who's now running for re-election, played in either allowing it to continue or in curbing it? How helpful has he been to the cause of good government in New York? So it's hard to say how much corruption there still is. Uh, I don't have access to the investigative files like I used to. I think it's still a problem. Uh, you know, there are two kinds of corruption, right? The corruption that actually breaks laws, the conduct that actually violates the laws such as they are. And then there's sort of informal corruption in the system, you know, the things that are legal but are gross and disgusting and keep people, you know, myself included, out of politics. So I, I think people should spend a lot more time thinking about those things both in the state and in local governments. I, my worry is that there's a lot of things going on in local government that the FBI and, and local police don't have insight into, don't have the resources to look into, especially with the diminishment of local press. I think that's a big problem, that a lot of bad things get exposed by intrepid investigative reporters, whether at the Daily News or in papers. The Buffalo State, paper, the Buffalo whatever, paper. you know. Um, you know, the whole the Buffalo Billion case that we 
began to investigate and that recently culminated in guilty pleas and guilty convictions in two separate trials, you know, that began also in part because of investigative reporting that we read about with respect to contracting in Buffalo and some other cities upstate in New York. So, you know, the, the, the loss of resources on the part of law enforcement and on the part of media outlets is a big problem. So I think it's, it's still out there. Hopefully we made some dent and we caused people to think twice in their calculus about whether or not to commit a crime versus maintain their, their oath. I had been very vocal in real time about Governor Cuomo and his decision to dismantle what was initially, I think, a very good thing, the Moreland Commission. It made no sense. Uh, the timing was poor. It was premature. And I've not been shy about criticizing the governor about that. I also think that as a general matter, lip service is, w- is wonderful, but actually putting some political capital behind changing things, whether it's increasing transparency or changing campaign finance laws, or as an example, trying not to hire people who have any hint of ethical problems. And it seems like a lot of people around Governor Cuomo had more than a hint. And they're, they're about to be sentenced to go to prison for long periods of time, as they should. You say the kind of things that keep you out of politics. A lot of people have asked, Preet, would you run for office? Are you asking? Yeah. Was that a statement? No, <laughs> I, I, it's a statement. And then it's a quizzical look. look. I um, So I thought about running for attorney general. And I, I announced on the podcast this week that I'm not. There's an open seat. And, you know, there are good people who are running for that position. I think public office is important. Um, I enjoyed having the appointed position that I had. You know, I think doing things from the outside, which I'm learning about, and I have this great task force with, with Governor Christy Todd Whitman and the Brennan Center, which hopes to restore institutions of democracy and have other things planned. The question about serving in office requires first a stomach for, an appetite for, and a, a thick enough skin for what it takes to get to office, which is campaigning, which also requires, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, a lot of, I think, fundraising. And some people can do it and some people like it less. I tend to like it less. I think there are ways to do it. Now, I'll think about that for the future. So you haven't closed the door on the possibility? What I've said often is that politics is not my cup of tea. You know, being a judge is not my cup of tea. Um, What I like doing more than anything else was being a line prosecutor and being the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which I think is one of the purest forms of public service. You could remain independent. You didn't know anything to anybody. You didn't have to ask anybody for a nickel, and you got to get up every morning and do the right thing. Uh, some of these other jobs are not like that, and certainly the path to these other jobs is not like that, which is not to... I, mean, I, I have great faith and respect for people who throw their hat in the ring, and I've supported some of those people. There are people who work for me who are running for office and who worked alongside me who are running for office. And I've supported them and, and gone to fundraisers for them. Uh, at this moment, it just doesn't seem to be for me. Are there any Democrats you could get excited about for 2020? Notwithstanding my hatred of politics, I'm going to give you the most diplomatic political answer. How about just an honest give. answer? Oh, wow. No one's ever asked me that before. Just an honest answer. Yeah. I'm not going to name who they are, but yes. There are two issues, right? Who you think would be great And there are people in the world who you might think would be great for various things. And then who you think can win. And those are not necessarily the same. And if you feel strongly that Donald Trump is hurting the country, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, I know a lot, you know, I've not said anything about Donald Trump that's worse than what a lot of leaders in the Republican Party have said. I I don't consider opposition to Donald Trump actually to be partisan at all. I don't think that he is a Republican. I don't know what he is. 
But if you believe that Donald Trump, like a lot of people do, is bad for the country, and you think that anyone would be better, including Michael Pence, right? Not everyone agrees with that, but I do. Then the question is, to get excited about someone, is it more important to have the perfect, most idealistic candidate who is less likely to win, or the person who's more, more likely to win who maybe doesn't align with your views 100%. So who falls into each of those categories? Uh, you know, the the, 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 the best sequel. candidate we'll that is that is that Mike Bloomberg? I, I'm not I'm, I'm not going to name names. Joe Biden? But I but I laid out the framework guys on the stay tuned with Katie and Brian. <laughs> well, you can you stay know, tuned for my future I, this, answer. This was supposed to be a crossover but you're too interesting and oh, there are too many boy. things to talk about, Preet. I'm going to so, ask you one question. Yes, one question. By the time this show airs, on Thursday, what will Les Moonves's job be? I do not know. I do not know. I can see an argument for either way. Oh, uh, now look at you. <laughs> this is. This. I really no. How about an I honest think, answer, Katie? Uh, an Pre- honest you have no answer is. On this. You could see how it would be hard to maintain somebody who has been so supportive of the Me Too movement. The stories were pretty upsetting, the stories of retribution in particular, even more so in some ways than the act, which was also pretty reprehensible. On the other hand, there's a lot of goodwill. I can see people saying it happened a long time ago. What do you think, Brian? I think in this environment, much as I like and respect him, it's going to be Well, do you still respect him after reading what you read? I don't respect the behavior that was in these articles. If that's true, I have a hell of a lot less respect for him. But if it can be, you know, proven or verified that he did these things, I think it's going to be very hard for him to continue in this job in this environment. And if it's true that he did these things, it's a good thing. I think that a lot of these media organizations pre do not take this as seriously as they need to. And that right now they are really more interested in protecting and maintaining the status quo than taking a really hard look at some of these issues. And I think that this, I think, proves as much as anything that that is really necessary. But to be able to police yourself or to investigate yourself is very challenging. I think if I were the president of any of these news organizations, I would bring an outside person to really get to the bottom of what's been going on at these places so for every, years. So every news organization you think should be doing that, right? Yes. And, and they're they, not. They're not. Why, why aren't they? Because they're probably they worried about yeah. the results. They're worried about the findings and they're worried about their jobs. Do you think any of the people who have been the subject of stories and accusations uh, have been treated unduly, unfairly? It's hard because I don't know all the details of all the accusations, but well, is, right is now— Is it truly hard when it's someone that you've worked with? Like, are, are you yeah. still friends with Matt Lauer? You know, we haven't really talked about it. And I really don't know, even to this day, all the details about what transpired. I know what I've read. I've tried to get to the bottom of it various ways, but I don't really have access to the information. But clearly— it must have been egregious enough that swift action had to be taken against somebody who had really been a cornerstone of NBC for a very long time. So I can only assume that 
that the behavior was pretty reprehensible, and he is admitted as such, even though I think there are some, in some ways, he's been misrepresented at times in all the media accounts by all these different outlets, you know? Do you think we're close to the end of revelations about this kind of misconduct in the media world or? I don't know. You know, I think there are probably still more cases out there. And I think, you know, you haven't heard much about Wall Street. Yeah, you know, I've been wondering about that. And so I think there are a lot of industries that still have not been fully examined. And, you know, I think that that's why it's really important for there to be complete transparency and a real change in how these organizations, companies, et cetera, operate. I agree. Do what I wanted to ask you. Yeah. So on 9-11, I was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York and living on 22nd Street between Broadway and Park Avenue. And I was I was in the shower. We had just come back from a family vacation and I came out. My wife asked me to come into the into the bedroom. The TV was on and it was, you know, I guess 8.50, 8.52 in the morning and we were watching the Today Show and you were anchoring when the events happened. But the interesting thing is for years afterwards on the anniversary of 9-11, the thing that I would watch in the morning was MSNBC. I don't know if they still do it, but for at least yeah, 10 years. Yeah, I think this last year, this the first year they stopped doing that. 10 or 15 that. years. Uh, MSNBC would rebroadcast live and in real time what happened that day and, and your original program on the Today Show. And it's, it's, it's shocking to watch it after knowing what was happening. And, and maybe it's, I don't know if it's weird or if you ever watched it again. Oh, I, I have a couple of times, and, and, yeah. And, and so they have you in real time trying to assess how much damage has happened to the one tower. And then in real time, we see your reaction. And Matt Lauer was on with you as well. When the second plane hits and then the rumors of the, of the Pentagon being hit and a plane going towards the Capitol and all that, all that crazy time. And for some reason, I don't know why, I've watched that every year for a long time. In some ways, I want it to be brought back to the shock and horror of that morning. And there, there are moments then later in the day where you think about the tragedy and the people lost. But there's something about never wanting to forget how awful it was in the moment, particularly if you lived in New York and you lived not far from the towers like I didn't. What was that like for you to be on air, to have to report that happening? And what has it been like in the years since watching yourself? I felt like I was in the middle of that Orson Welles War of the Worlds. I mean, it felt it was so surreal and terrifying. I remember my hand sort of shaking like a leaf. And it's also interesting. I think it speaks to my personality. I was engaging in a lot of magical thinking. And so I remember seeing that fire in the first tower and thinking, oh, it's before 9 o'clock. Thank God a lot of people aren't at work yet. Or somebody flying a small plane had a heart attack, which I think had happened decades before at, at the Empire State Building. You know? But in retrospect, you realize, right, when, when you see the gash in the building, yeah. that could not have been caused by a small plane. I know. But when you said it, I was like, oh, Katie's probably right. It's probably a small plane. And then only later do you realize that... It was it so was unimaginable. Honestly, it was so unimaginable. We'd never seen anything like this in our lifetimes or in history, really. But when you're, when you're reporting on something like that, and we've seen brave and, and intrepid anchors on TV cover shootings and, and war, there's something about that day 
that's the most indelible day, I think, for anyone alive in America. I think so, um, even compared to things that happened back in the 40s. Do you think of yourself as a journalist first? And is it is it I'm 90% a journalist and 10% a person? Do those two things merge? I mean, one of the things I think people like about you is that you're yourself. I think of myself. Did, did, you I, cut, did you cut off some of yourself yes, from that broadcast? I did. How do you do that? You know, I think when something like that happens that is so momentous and horrendous, you have to have sort of this detachment because you realize that everything you say is takes on a tremendous amount of weight, that people are watching for information for any kind of knowledge. And you're sort of being a traffic cop. Where can I go next? You have people talking to your, you in your ear. Go to Elliot Sparkman. She's down with a cell phone near the, near. you know, you're going to former FBI age. I mean, you're just get, they're getting anybody who can shed light on anything. And I remember being so cognizant of the Oklahoma City bombing and how quickly people ascribed it to radical Islamic terrorism. And and of course, it turned out to be homegrown terrorism. So I was very mindful of not jumping to that conclusion. And I remember when Matt said that it's a, obviously an act of terrorism or whatever, insinuating that it was a foreign entity or an act of war, whatever his words were. I remember thinking, oh, wait, you know, wait, wait, don't say that unless we know for sure. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, I, and when I used to watch it, I could not believe how I was able to keep my cool. Uh, look, it's amazing. I was so Years freaked later. out. But then the other thing is, you know, all the, there were all these inflection points that morning. So the plane hits, second plane hits. I don't remember anyone on television predicting that a tower would fall and fall that quickly. And then you're on air and sort of in the background, uh, and maybe, you know, your eyes are not glued to the screen every second. It took a couple of seconds, my recollection right. is for you guys on TV to realize what had happened. It, How, yeah. What did you think of that when that happened? I remember Tom was there, and I know we were just, you know, you do kind of have this dual personality where you're a human watching something unfold, and yet you're a professional trying to explain it to the country. And again, I think I thought, oh, God, I hope those people are out of there. You know, you just, you... You couldn't, I think, wrap your head around the fact that what that tower crumbling before your eyes actually meant in terms of the loss of life. It was unlike. And the, the people, you know, the, one of the worst parts was later with all the people looking for their loved ones and all those Xeroxed faces on those chain link fences all over lower Manhattan, which I'm sure you saw every day. We did. And you saw these faces and you thought about the families and you thought about how desperate they were. And they would come on the Today Show and just ask, you know, please, if anyone's seen this person. And that actually, you know, when the human toll became so clear, that was when it just was overwhelming for me personally. I remember coming out of the subway near work, the Brooklyn Bridge sub subway stop, the 456. When you come out of that subway, for months, there was the smell. Oh, it was so acrid. Ruins. And it was a combination of chemicals and other things, but to me it smelled like mass death. And so there was never a moment you could forget about it if you were in a certain part of Manhattan. 
because you always smelled it. I lived on the Upper East Side and all the way up there, yeah. you could smell what was the fumes of electrical, an electrical fire and plastic and just this, this kind of acrid smell that permeated the atmosphere in New York City for days. Was, days. That, your, was that your hardest day on air? Oh, definitely. I think it was the hardest day of my career. Although there have been a lot of hard days, sadly. Yeah. Recently as well. Yeah, just in general. Just, uh, you know, my husband dying and having to talk about that. So many tragedies, right? So many tragedies. And uh, it just becomes part of, part of the job. You have to tell these stories with compassion and, and with some level of uh, objectivity because after all, that's your job. Well, Preet, will you come back and I talk will. to us? It's been a pleasure being on Stay Tuned with Katie and Brian. <laughs> Thank you, Preet. Thanks, folks.